Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Menachem Fish, Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at Tel Aviv University. His new book, Creatively Undecided, Toward a History and Philosophy of Scientific Agency, is just out from University of Chicago Press. Thomas Kuhn upset both scientists and philosophers of science when he argued that transitions from one scientific framework or paradigm, as he put it, to another were irrational. This change was like a religious conversion experience rather than a reason shift from one theory to another based on the best evidence. But even if one disagrees with Kuhn, how can this change be shown to be rational? More generally, how can transitions from one set of normative standards to another be rational, given that there is no neutral position from which one can criticize one's own normative standards? Fish takes up this challenge. He defends an account of framework change which which accepts that we cannot be self-critical of our own standards, but we can be destabilized by external criticism. Some of those who are ambivalated in this way then creatively attempt to tackle their ambivalence by developing hybrid theories, which in turn provide others in the scientific community with a means to critically assess their theories and develop new frameworks. Fish's book draws on work from Korsgaard, Friedman, Gallison, McDowell, and others in a rich discussion of the dynamics of normativity in science, and he uses debates on the foundations of algebra in the 1830s to illustrate his account. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Menachem Fish. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. Pleasure. So your your book is a very interesting look at a a question that arose uh, earlier on in the philosophy of science, uh, basically from Thomas Kuhn's book uh, the, on scientific revolutions, and his whole idea that um, you have paradigms and the issue of paradigm change was, you know, famously or infamously on his view, um, and a, a question of a basically a religious conversion from one paradigm to the next. And, and there are a lot of reasons for this, um, but it was basically the, the irrationality of the change that got a lot of scientists, a lot of philosophers very upset. And um, so this is a very interesting look at that issue of how scientists you know, sort of come from one theoretical framework to another theoretical framework um, and a defense of a particular way in which that can be understood as a as a rational process um, so it's a so it's an interesting look at something that that hasn't been a hot topic for for 
for a number of years. And so it's, it's uh, quite exciting to be able to, to revisit that and, and think about it from a completely different perspective. Um, but before we, before we get to the book, uh, maybe you can start us off with a little bit of biography about yourself, um, you know, how you be- came to philosophy and, and how you came to be interested in uh, this particular topic and to the writing of the book. Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for framing the, the book's project uh, so well. Um, how I came to it, 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 it's a long story, but I'll, I'll cut to the chase. I, I started off um, studying physics and math and uh, growing uh, more and more claustrophobic uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, in the move from one's first degree to, to, to graduate work, uh, you sort of narrow down considerably. And I, I found myself uh, being, uh, being interested and drawn by, by the broader and larger questions. Um, it took me a while to realize that those questions were, were not larger scientific questions, but rather questions about science. Um, so I, I switched. After, after, after a period of time outside the university, I went back to study philosophy and, and sort of capitalizing on, on, on you know, whatever mathematical knowledge and skills I had. I, I was drawn um, initially to uh, sort of more technical work in, in inductive logic, confirmation theory, philosophy of science. I mean, the, 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 uh, the hot potato, <laughs> as you put it in those days, was, was less coon. Uh, the hot potato were the raven's paradoxes, the uh, paradoxes of confirmation. And um, I, I, I wrote about that and found myself more and more committed to a Papirian frame of mind. Um, and a Papirian fr- by Papirian frame of mind, I meant uh, essentially the, the sort of master idea of Popper's philosophy. Um, and that is that, that rash- rationality, uh, to, to act rationally, to conduct oneself rationally, is to take a critical view of things. And, and that, that identification of rationality and criticism is something I'm, that's still very, very much with me as a sort of uh, 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 basic uh, philosophical commitment. However, what I began to realize is that to take a critical look and to view rational action in science and outside science, as action taken for a reason, uh, and, and action taken for a reason being taking stock of one's situation, one's knowledge, oneself, uh, and finding something wanting or lacking sufficiently to, uh, 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 to justify uh, inter- intervention. Um, now, It took me a while to realize that that vocabulary of wanting, being problematic, lacking, uh, is a normative vocabulary. And people committed to different normative frameworks will judge the same situation uh, differently. And they will see 
they will see problems where other people do not see problems and 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 see and not see problems where where other people do in other words and you can actually hear popper uh, uh turning in his grave perhaps the very notion of a by the very adoption of a Popperian uh, uh, point of view in that respect, it renders rationality and criticism framework dependent inherently by necessity. In other words, to take a critical stance, one has to be committed to a normative framework, a framework of of, of, of standards of propriety by which one judges things to be inappropriate enough, um, wrong enough, lacking enough, uh, to, to justify intervening. This is true of science, it's true of politics, it's true of ethics, true, true of religion, true actually of all rational endeavor. Okay? Now, the, the fra- the, the, this is the sort of first... Uh, uh, th- this is my point of departure in, 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 in this book, because if, if you accept, and, and th- this will sound kind of weird to people who were brought up um, like I was, uh, believing that, that Popper and Kuhn posed diametrically opposed philosophies of science, to say that to adopt, to adopt a Popperian position, one has to by necessity, adopt a Cunian view of the framework dependency of, of all rational endeavor is, is something that's never really been put like this before as far as I know. Now, the, the second problem is the problem that you alluded to uh, when, when uh, uh, attributing um, rightly a notion of, of conversion and the other notion uses is, is a gestalt switch when it comes to paradigm shifts, to transitions uh, of, of normative frameworks. Kuhn was incapable of giving an account of the rationality of changing one's standards of rational endeavor. Um, he, never, he never put it this way, but it's obviously the problem lurking in the background. That, that one cannot deem inappropriate one's standards of propriety. Okay. Can I, can I, uh, can I interject for a second there? Um, because, uh, I mean, we've sort of gotten, you know, deeply into the book already. Um, uh, so there, were, there, there was a question that I had when you're talking about the Popperian versus Kuhnian normative framework. Um, so it sounds like uh, you are simply identifying uh, having standards of propriety uh, w- with um, a framework. In other words, the standards are the framework. Is, is that correct? Because it seems to me that, that, that framework uh, for Kuhn was, I mean, he uses the word paradigm and you don't, but I mean, that's, it's the same for him that the framework would certainly not be identical to the standards. Kuhn didn't give a very good account, a philosophical account of what he meant, of what he meant by frameworks. But he, he, I mean, he said, he said uh, um, quite a bit by associating a paradigm 
with the kinds of norms of uh, 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 of conduct, of, of scientificity, if I could use the word, of, of what a fact is, what an explanation is, what what's the proper procedure, what goes without saying and what doesn't, and so on and so forth, which which is the sort of process of 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 of, of culturation that a that a graduate student undergoes when becoming a scientist. You 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 adopt a language, a way of thinking, and a set of standards by which to operate and by which you'll be judged and by which you'll be making judgments in your work. Now now, this, this is what brings Kuhnian paradigms in line with normative frameworks in general. Um, and, and, and my work, I think, is, is my work, in a sense, uh, is more general than science. But, but where in the discussion of normativity, and we'll, we'll get to that, I, I assume, a little later on, but people who have dealt with normativity, like John McDowell, like uh, uh, Robert Brandon, like uh, Christine Korsgaard and others. Uh, uh, Wittgenstein, the later Wittgenstein is probably the best example. I mean, he wrote more than anyone about, about uh, uh, forms of life and language games, but does not talk at all about the dynamics by which a form, forms of life change and shift and the way in which language games undergo transitions. And, 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 and uh, cultures and communities sort of change from one language game to another or one form of life to another. Now, in, in general philosophy of mind and world and language, and normativity and self, um, the, the vast majority of the, of the community sort of managed to get away without talking about the dynamics of normativity. Uh, but in science, you can't do that since Kuhn, because it's it's obviously the case that 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 to take account of science is not only to take account of the way science normally conducts itself uh, within the framework of a given paradigm and a given set of scientific norms, but you also need to account about account for paradigm shifts, which indeed happen. Popper himself poo-pooed that, and this is. This is really what got me started. At the very last essay uh, uh, Popper wrote and published um, gave the title to that collection of essays. I think it was published in '94. It was called "The Myth of the Framework." Now that that really rubbed me the wrong way, or, or really got me thinking, because because as I said before, there's no way in the world to be able to talk about criticism without a normative framework. I mean, finding something wrong, criticizing a situation, is framework dependent in precisely the sense I, I, I outlined before. So, so the problem then um, becomes the following. So, so you, can, you can articulate a Papirian point of view, which is framework dependent, but the question that Kuhn left open was how can you account for the rationality of framework uh, transitions or paradigm shifts, because it's by means of the old paradigm that you're ruling uh, things right or wrong. So how can you find that ruler itself, uh, that set of norms, uh, sufficiently wrong to require replacement? This is a question that, that, that 
hasn't really been asked. I mean, the person who, who confronted it in, in, in the most detail um, uh, um, in, 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 in a profoundly more philosophical way than Kuhn ever did was Michael Friedman. But Michael Friedman sort of narrows down that question to a question of choice, how to practitioners committed to the old paradigm uh, uh, justify moving to a new paradigm. But the real question for understanding science, science is not a question of choice between given paradigms, new and old, but, but how to explain how a practitioner can find the, 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 the paradigm constitutive of his work sufficiently lacking to want to devise a new one. Okay, not 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 to join the opposition. There is no opposition, but but those creative moments in the life in in the life of a science where someone uh, uh, finds it uh, um, uh, finds sufficient justification to grope uh, uh, towards new opportunities in this respect, and um, and this is some th th this is really what I wanted to do in the book. So, so, I mean, the short answer to your initial question was that I, I, I sort of came of philosophical age within the Papirian camp, realizing the normative constraints on normativity itself, finding an account of that uh, uh, framework dependency in the neo-Kantianism of, of Kuhn and people like Kuhn. I say neo-Kantianism because uh, Kuhn himself uh, um, described himself later in life as operating as, as as offering a Kantian picture with movable categories rather than rather than fixed categories. So so how can you maintain a Papirian notion of rationality within this uh, neo-Kantian view of of, of 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 the framework dependency of scientific work? Uh, and this is this is this is the question that animates this book, and and the type of uh, answer I try to develop in it. So we're talking about these transitions, these these, as you put it very nicely, the, the dynamics of normativity of, of how individuals can uh, you know may be able to shift how, how to explain the rationality of that, and you you describe it in various ways in terms of destabilization or ambivalating, becoming ambivalent, um, and the important I think insight or or one of the insights here is the idea that um, uh, as you just sort of hinted, um, uh, one. If, if framework dependence is true and one's very standards of assessment, of, of, of normative assessment or criticism, uh, if, if those are framework dependent, then it's, it's very difficult to see how you might like uh, criticize them because that just seems to be a sort of a contradiction. And, and you say, well, even though that might be true, it doesn't follow that there can't be contradiction, period. The contradiction instead, or or that there can't be criticism. Sorry, period. There, the criticism comes from the outside. It comes from, as you put it, trusted external sources, um, and this is what destabilizes or creates an ambivalence, um, uh, and and that enables some sort of 
dynamic change of of frameworks to occur in a you know again in in a rational sense it's not merely destabilizing it's destabilizing in a way that allows for um a rational change so let me just you you said to sort of put that whole thing into the framework of the book you have um one part of the book you know the is 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 describing that whole process and that you kind of break down into three different themes of what you kind of just introduced a bit the idea of framework dependence was one idea another is this idea of uh what you call critical rationalism um and then there's a third theme um uh which you kind of call yeah what you call sort of hegelian um so each of those three themes kind of work together to bring together the whole sort of philosophical framework for this dynamical view of of normativity um and then in the second part uh you try to illustrate how this happens with an actual case from uh actually the history of mathematics and debates about the foundations of algebra um in Cambridge in the 1930s and you focus on a particular figure um uh Peacock uh you know and and some of his uh colleagues there at Cambridge you know Babbage and and Herschel and so forth okay so there's two broad sections to the book one is the philosophical framework another is the application to a particular case so maybe you know to maybe we can start by talking about what's what's the basic you know just the very basic moves that you make in the framework and before we get to the case itself yeah well let let it carry let me say first what i want to emphasize so that people don't get the the wrong idea this isn't a theory of how how normative commitment changes i mean and our normative commitments change surreptitiously all the time I, I mean, you you did put it carefully at the beginning. This is this is a book about how uh, normative transitions that are rational are possible. I mean, in in aesthetic taste, for example. I mean, we we find ourselves uh, awakening to the fact that we've lost we've lost interest in in certain genres of music and literature. Um, we find we dress differently. That 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 when looking in the mirror and getting ready for a for a very posh occasion, uh, we 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 judge ourselves to be uh, you know appropriately dressed very very differently than we did uh, as the snapshots in our in our album indicate uh, ten or fifteen years ago. And there was no moment in which we deemed those ways wrong and this way is right. We say it's like falling in or out of love, uh, caring less and caring more. And, and, and com- normative commitment sort of uh, uh, um, shifts surreptitiously over time. What we, what we would not like to think is that in science, in religion, in ethics, in politics, um, uh, such changes are merely surreptitious. Or merely because we, you know, we've got tired, we've become tired of one, uh, and and we're becoming excited about the other. We'd like to think that such such shifts in 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 uh, in ethics, in, in in science, in politics, are rational. And 
and performed for a reason. Now, as as you've already said, it it seems to be obvious that if you take the notion of framework dependency in a strong neo-Kantian firm sense, as I do, and you, you, you deem a rational move to be acting uh, in the light of criticism, then we're up against, uh, uh, we're up against a wall. Uh, we're, we're, we're in a dead alley, it seems. And, and, uh, and, and this problem borders on the incoherent. It's insurmountable. There is no way in the world, it seems, in which we can create sort of critical distance critical self-distance from our own standards by which we make those moves. Um, uh, and and the, the, um, the premise of the book is that there's nothing wrong with that argument, that left to our own devices, talking to ourselves, or rather, uh, uh, if, we, if, we, if we insist that the drama of deliberation remains intrasubjective, you know, within the confines of talking to ourselves, as in Kant's second critique, for example, then there's no way in the world in which we can uh, create that distance. Um, When Kant talks about ethics, he's therefore forced to say that morality is absolute, it's universal, uh, and, 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 you know, just like his, char- his categories and forms of intuition in the first critique, uh, it's a question of becoming aware of what is universally hardwired, basically, into our way of thinking. But since Kant, uh, we've realized that the synthetic a priori, a priori in science changes, our standards change, paradigms shift, and therefore we have to give an account of how they do and if they can shift rationally. Kuhn, I think, believed that they couldn't. And, uh, and, and Michael Friedman tries to, 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 to soften paradigm shifts, to view them as less radical than they really are, uh, and, and ends up not being able, in my opinion, as I explain in the book, to solve the problem. I think, and, and this brings me to the third point which you alluded to, and that is the the, the, the Hegelian, in inverted commas, uh, the Hegelian uh, um, uh, added element to the two first Kantian ones, uh, or Neo-Hegelian rather, and that is the realization, and I think everyone can attest to this, that when exposed to the echo chamber of, 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 of the critique, of the normative cre- critique of other people who think differently from us, we are sometimes we are sometimes rendered ambivalent to the norms that they question in ways in which we cannot ambivalate ourselves um, precisely because we can't create that distance. There's a metaphor or an analogy I draw on in the book, and that is of a recording device. Um, when when we I mean, and everyone's experienced this, the way in which listening to a recording of your voice. Uh, I'm, I'm recording my voice now, and I'll be listening to it later on. Or watching yourself on closed-circuit TV can often be very, very disturbing. 
that there's often a, a, a real discrepancy between the way you realize people hear or see you and your own self-image from within. And that sort of critical distance cannot be uh, achieved merely by talking to ourselves. You need that device. And, and I explained the length in the book. I, I, I don't know if we want to get into that now, but there's something about the way the normative criticism is leveled against us that sort of confronts us with a normative portrayal of ourselves um, uh, 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 by those who criticize us that jars with our own normative portrayal. And it's that discrepancy of pictures, of normative portrayals, that is capable of destabilizing uh, our commitment to the norms in question. And once they are destabilized sufficiently and rendered, and we're rendered ambivalent towards them in the sort of Harry Frankfurt sense of the term, then with the rest of our commitments that remain firm, we are able to take a critical view of, 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 of those demoted norms. Very, very often we'll be defensive and reinsert them as before and keep on going. But occasionally, uh, that's where that that's that's where a, a framework that's how and where a framework transition um, will begin. So that that's the sort of general philosophical idea. But but what this book tries to do is to is to translate that into a model of 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 uh, uh, a, a model for scientific paradigm shifts. Um, and 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 the case of science. Uh, sort of presents us with uh, with 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 a special kind of situation because if if uh, uh, if we now agree that that the only way in which a paradigm can be can be assessed critically uh, is by exposure to external critics, uh, where does where does a scientific community encounter its external critics, um, and 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 it's not it, it's not merely a sociological question. I mean, the truth truth of the matter, as I put it in the book, is that only physics can change physics. Uh, only chemists can change chemistry. Only biologists can change biology. So so the only way in which to begin to account for the for setting a paradigm shift in motion is to envisage a practitioner of sufficient voice and standing traveling outside the community, becoming ambivalated elsewhere by external critics, and then returning to the community and, and, and sort of ambivalating it. And, and this is these sort of these two stages delineate uh, the basic components of the narratology of, uh, of scientific framework transitions that the book attempts to uh, articulate and, and then test with the case study uh, I give at the end. Well, let me, let me just ask about this external, internal, you know, physics can only, only physicists can change physics and chemists can change chemistry and um, and yet there has to be 
could could you articulate that a bit more? Because um, clearly, if you if the if the account depends on external criticism in order to ambivalate a field or a bunch of practitioners in it, um, then it then it has to be kind of clear what it what it is for something to first of all what it is for something to count as being external to whatever. Um, uh, and I, I would say, you know, from one perspective, chemists, if chemists are not external to chemistry. Um, uh, so I, I'm not clear on how it can be true that you have external criticism of chemistry, yet only chemists can change chemistry. So there's that first thing. Um, and then there's this issue, which you don't, I don't recall that you talk about much in the book, but it's um, the idea also that it's it's trusted external criticism, or uh, and that there are particular individuals um, in a, in a scientific community that are somehow more open to the external criticism or um, in some sense more affected by it or something like that. And that uh, these particular people force both sociological as well as presumably individual psychological factors are able to actually assume this role of, of the leader. So could you, could you say a bit more about how it is that you have? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Let's let's start with Popper. I mean, w one one of Popper's uh, 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 great ideas is is that criticism should not be viewed um, as an attack. Uh, criticism should not be viewed as as, uh, as 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 a negative view. Um, criticism should be viewed as as an, a friendly engagement, precisely. Uh, from the point of view of, of my book, is is to, is what what an external critic can give you, uh, which you can never give yourself, is a different perspective, um, and and articulate criticism from a point of, from the point of view, uh, um, and and do so honestly and with conviction from the point of view of 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 his or her other framework, in ways that you cannot offer yourself. Now. The way the way in which I, I I envisage being being ambivalated from the outside is is by means of an idea I uh, uh, which which was initially uh, promoted very very interestingly by Peter Gallison, the notion of a scientific trading zone. Uh, theoretical theoretical physicists need mathematicians. Uh, um, uh, uh, experimental physicists uh, need to talk to instrument makers. Uh, they need to talk to computer people, and so on and so forth. And and just like the the sociological anthropological notion of a trading zone in which two cultures meet and develop a sort of pidgin language, simplified mediating language by which they can trade uh, without having to bring, you know, their entire uh, 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 metaphysics and set of beliefs into a safe trading zone uh, where, where they can do business without being exposed, it is an idea that Peter uh, um, uh, adopted to account for the way in which uh, 
sort of scientific knowledge travels across disciplinary borders. Um, when, when again, when 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 physicists talk to mathematicians, when when practitioners talk to f- students, and so on and so forth. Now, what and 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 for Peter Gallison, uh, very much with the idea of a pigeon a pigeon language and a creole in mind, um, thought about the trading zone only in terms of simplification, which of course. It, you know, if you, if you read a calculus textbook for physics, it doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of the, you know, the mathematical foundations that the very same calculus will be taught uh, within the mathematical community. That goes without saying. But what the, the added insight um, I gave to the, uh, in the book to the, uh, to the trading zone is the following. When you're talking, uh, let me give you a, a, a sort of a biographical example. I, I, I spent, I was lucky enough to spend a year at the Institute for Advanced Study in, uh, in Princeton. And I, I was there, I was a philosopher, historian of science, I was a member of the, of the uh, School of Historical Studies. But I, I took quite a bit of interest in, in what was going on in the, in, in the School of the natural sciences, and especially the, the group working on string theory there. And I'd, I'd, I'd corner someone, uh, you know, okay, I, I did this two or three times with professors from the school, and I was really, really curious, not critical, really, really curious to, to understand um, uh, their work and what they're doing and the way in which string theory would sort of unify relativity gravity theory and quantum mechanics. Now, the difference between having a conversation on string theory at their table with their colleagues and having that conversation with me is that with me, of course, he'd make it simple. But on the other hand, he'd have to say more because there is far less he could take for granted when talking to me. He'd have to articulate basics, which we don't do in our home community where, where we're in agreement about the basics. This is something one experiences when traveling abroad. You need what, what, what's taken for granted at home very often needs to be articulated. And you're faced with, with inoffensive uh, 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 questions um, of clarification, uh, uh, you know, requests for articulation, and you find yourself talking aloud, sometimes for the first time, about about lots of stuff that you t- absolutely took for granted. Now, we've all experienced this when, when talking abroad, that suddenly our voice sounds hollow, and suddenly we're, feeling quest- we're fielding questions, innocent questions, friendly questions, uh, um, non-threatening questions but questions that, that are never raised in our home community. Now, very often, <laughs> you know, we're, we're very confident and we give the answers and we go back home uh, unruffled. But in these situations, um, we may very well become ambivalented. I, I use ambivalence as, you know, in, in, in a verb form uh, in right. the book. We can become ambivalent. We can, 
you know, we found that, find ourselves returning home slightly cross-eyed uh, with wrinkles in our forehead, not quite sure what's going on, um, and, 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 and worrying that something might be amiss, although we can't put our fingers on it. Now, if, if ambivalence very often, it, it will remain, you know, that there was a book once written about, about German physicists uh, at the turn of the uh, at the turn of the century, sort of caught between uh, classical physics and the new relativity theory and quantum mechanics, it was called "Night Thoughts of a German Physicist." And and you know, very often these worries, this ambivalence, this uh, sudden lack of certainty, this the the, the de destabilization of, of of what we thought was absolutely certain and we were committed to, uh, remains. In, in the confines of the night thought, of the confines, uh, you know, among the Victorians I, I worked on, of the diary, or maybe the, the, private, uh, uh, the private communication. That kind of worry, that kind of ambivalence, that kind of, 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 uh, of lack of sureness and, 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 and uh, uncertainty doesn't travel very far. But often... Um, what will happen if we're talking about a sufficiently creative individual, and the book is called Creatively Undecided, a Galileo, a Poincaré, a Tycho Brahe, a George Peacock, a William Hewell, a William Rowan Hamilton. Um, what will happen is that this person will creatively attempt to tackle this ambivalence by producing a confident picture of the foundations of the science, which will be uh, um, uh, hybridic. It'll be hybrid. I mean, if, if you think of Galileo's worldview, it's half Greek and half not Greek anymore. Um, if you think of Tycho Brahe's sort of uh, 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 impossible mixture of, of geocentric and heliocentric, uh, uh, cosmology. Um, Poincaré remaining committed to a Kantian notion of form of intuition, but rendered a convention rather than hardwired. And my, my own peacock, in the example we, we may talk about more in a minute, uh, uh, fashioning a theory of algebra, which is, which is at the very same time both a theory of number and a totally for, formal symbolic, symbolical system. Now, these, these hybrids, um, uh, the, the sort of foundational split pictures, um, are, are sort of presented by these, by these people as answers to their problem. But what they really do is to articulate the problem um, in, 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 uh, um, uh, in a dramatic form, in a way that is capable of ambivalating others and forcing others to run with some of the balls and setting, and setting that uh, uh, framework transition in, in motion. In other words, the claim of the book basically is, or the double claim of the book basically, in terms of the narratology, of, of accounting for how uh, uh, rational framework transitions happen in science, is to account A, for the way in which a creative individual, individual was initially 
uh, ambivalated outside the community in conversation with people who did not share his, his, his framework or her framework, and then coming back to the community and creating a stir by producing an intermediary work, creative, ingenious, but neither here nor there, hanging on to the old, groping towards a new possibility, which, which, which is, is sort of uh, uh, internally jarring sufficiently not to allow people to settle for it. And, and in that way, ambivalating other practitioners and setting this in motion. Um, so, so the key figure in a framework transition then becomes those intermediary, uh, in retrospect, confused, perhaps unclear, not totally coherent thinkers who then vanish from the record uh, after creating a havoc. And um, the book is really a plea to, to, to center stage, to, 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 you know, to foreground um, uh, these hybridic works and these intermediary figures because they are the key uh, to setting a framework uh, transition. And then the person who comes later with a bright idea and, 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 and polishes off the new framework uh, is really uh, reacting, reacting to them rather than uh, 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 you know, creating and seeing through the framework transition alone. So it's it's a narratology not of scientific heroes, but of creative indecision, which is the the title I chose for the book. There seem to be two different levels of framework transition. Uh, one is at the individual level, uh, and and another is at the you know the group level. It's just to put it that way. Um, and it, and it seems like, and I'm just wondering, are you giving like one account for these two different levels? Because in some cases, it seems like there's an individual who experiences self-criticism and maybe they will end up in a hybrid position and then they translate that and that, and, and they're sort of a, a transitional figure who then helps bring the field into a new space um, by providing this kind of hybrid, uh, you know, bridge of some sort. Um, but then, of course, there are other individuals who come up with, you know, sort of new frameworks. I'm not sure how exactly that's supposed to happen, um, where there doesn't seem to be maybe maybe there's no transition or I, I'm not exactly sure, but you get you get people like in your example, like Babbage, who you know just come up with a new framework. And I'm, I'm just wondering the the account you give on the one hand seems to be directed at both individual transitions in their normative commitments and group level normative commitments. So are you giving the same account for both? Well, in a, in a sense, yes, um, but, but, but I need to explain that because the book, um, and I, I, I say something to this effect towards the end, there's, there's an element, there's a subtext to the book which, which uh, constitutes, I think, something of an act of protest. Uh, the, the way in which the problem of accounting for the rationality of framework 
of, 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 of scientific framework sort of stumped Kuhn and stumped the community, created or, 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 or developed or, or s s signaled a parting of ways. Um, philosophers of science, and I, I'm not now counting Michael Friedman. Michael Friedman at, at, in 2000 wrote Dynamics of Reason, and he was really the first person to take, try and take the, book, the bull by the horns. But up until then, uh, philosophy of science was worried about, uh, you know, Bayesian confirmation theories and, and, and technicalities like that, and didn't really rise to the occasion. Um, uh, didn't enter conversation as the way I try to do in the book with philosophers working on normativity uh, uh, in general. Again, like Christine Korsgaard working in meta-ethics, uh, questions of mind and world, like, like in, in, in uh, John McDowell's famous book, questions of the normativity of language and conceptualization as in Brandon, um, um, and so on and so forth. And, and, and I, I, I mean, what, what, what I believe uh, is that philosophy of science has sort of lost, lost contact with these very, very important, with this very, very important work, uh, uh, writ large in general, in, in the neo-Kantian sort of tradition in meta-ethics, philosophy of language, philosophy of self, philosophy of normativity, and there was much to learn from them. And at the same time, I think they had much to learn about, you know, the special problem of normativity as it poses itself within within science. So. The book attempts, on the one hand, to bring philosophy of science back into the more general philosophical fold. The other sort of active process that was that one of the effects of, 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 the, of the sort of Kuhnian impasse uh, um, uh, regarding the rationality of framework transitions was a sort of, I, let me call it a retreat to collectivity. Um, it's, it, it became increasingly difficult to give an account of the way an individual changes his or her mind in the way I try to account for, and the way that changing of mind can change other people's mind. Um, uh, and, and, and that difficulty sort of played out in the historiography of science that developed after Kuhn, which became a historiography of scientific collectives. Uh, lots of work about scientific traditions and scientific skills and scientific practices and communities and schools uh, and so on and so forth. And, and much less about <laughs> the rationality of an individual deliberation, the way, in which, the way in which argument and dialogue can have a transformative effect on the way people think. Um, and therefore, the book is, 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 the main title is Creatively Undecided. The subtitle is Towards a History and Philosophy of Scientific Agency. And what I wa wanted to bring back into the discussion is not merely a broader philosophical perspective, but the very notion of scientific agency. Now, I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not a social historian, and, and there are people out there who could, who could, uh, um, sort of set, uh, and this is, this is my great hope, is that people who would, would set the, 
the the sort of narratology of of agency which I give within a broader sociological, uh, a communal collectivist uh, uh, setting, which which you know I, I I'm I'm not too good at. I mean, I, uh, so 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 again, I mean the 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 other the book is ambitious, but it's modest on on two counts. The first count I spoke of before. It's it's not about. Uh, a normative change in general, but about but about the rationality of normative change, and it's modest in the second that it's not it's not trying to give uh, 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 um, uh, a complete picture of the way a community changes its mind, but it does give an account or purports uh, to give an account of the way individuals do, and the way and by means of that case study, the way in which an individual of, of voice and standing like Peacock causes perhaps the greatest mathematician uh, of the first two-thirds of the, uh, of the 19th century, certainly working uh, within the English-speaking world, William Brown Hamilton, uh, uh, still a very young man. In 1830, when Peacock's book came out, he was, he was doing absolutely uh, 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 crystal work in optics and uh, in analytical mechanics. I mean, the, the whole, his, his work on the Hamiltonian um, uh, in theoretical mechanics was, was, was very much underway. And reading Peacock's book on algebra, Hamilton basically stopped in his tracks. He left optics forever. He left mechanics forever and devoted the next 15 years to devising an algebra he called quaternions, uh, which would be realistic, would give us, would, would give a a a a a, a real would would envisage envisages algebra as as the science of pure time in the Kantian sense of the term, but not the sort of ordinal uh, one-dimensional uh, vision of time, but 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 by means of quaternions of of, of triplets of numbers. Uh, eventually, uh, building the basis for vector analysis and tensor and the tensor calculus, but but this is the way in which the the the, the Peacock's totally hybridic work sort of manages to 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 ambivalate uh, Hamilton sufficiently to leave everything and to and and you know, to devise this new framework for mathematics, which he thought was realistic, but ended up, uh, he himself viewing it, a la Peacock, as a formal and symbolical system. The same goes for, De, for Augustus de Morgan, and the same goes for D.F. Gregory, who didn't live long, long enough to carry it through. So the impact of, um, of, of Peacock's hybridic, impossible, ambivalent algebra on these leading lights of the community is, is the way to understand how the understanding of mathematics sort of broadly changed um, uh, at the communal level uh, as a result of that. But what I deal with in the book are individuals talking to individuals, absolutely. Well, let me, we're, we're getting close to running out of time so um, I don't I don't think we'll, we'll I'll have to leave to the to listeners actually looking at the you know very interesting discussion of 
of Peacock's treatise on algebra and this this um, the juxtaposition of a of a arithmetical you know generalization you know algebra is a generalization of math right um, as opposed to a purely formal the one that that uh, I believe Babbage had had thought of. Um, but one of the, so there's a, you give a nice, clear sort of run through of, of how Peacock illustrates the general ambivalating, uh, of, of the individual who then has this effect on, on the rest of his community. Um, one, one of the questions I had, um, was, uh, you know, Kuhn was, you know, his main examples obviously were from the history of, of physics, um, you know, Newton to Einstein and, and those sorts of cases were his, uh, his paradigms of, of paradigm shifts. Um, uh, and so one of the questions that came up for me was the fact that if you're talking about mathematics, uh, I mean, to, to put it another way, with, with Kuhn, a lot of the blowback that he faced was precisely the idea that uh, science was supposed to be rational in this sense of, well, we decide our theories, we make theory choices on the basis of the empirical evidence. And, and, and there was space for other things and he kind of backtracked in certain ways. But I mean, that was the basic problem that people had with Kuhn was uh, that he made, uh, you know, science look irrational in the sense that here they are doing all these experiments. And, and then ultimately the theory choice is just this, you know, religious conversion. I mean, that was what was so upsetting to so many people. Um, so I'm just wondering how this, uh, your, your, how the question of empirical evidence and that uh, the weight of empirical evidence on the changes of frameworks, how does that fit in? It doesn't come in in the case of mathematics so much, um, but it certainly does come in for physics or chemistry or biology. And so how, do, how does the empirical evidence kind of figure into your overall picture? First of all, the, the, the sort of naive idea, the, the non-philosophical idea, let me say, that the world talks back um, is, is very, very problematic. Wilfred Sellers, one of, one, of, one of my heroes and one of the heroes of the people uh, uh, the book is in discourse with, um, dubbed the idea that, of course, there's a world out there. Of course... You know, we believe in, in external reality. Not only is there a world out there, but it impacts on our nerve ends and has a causal effect on us. But those irritations of our nerve ends, optical uh, uh, and so on and so forth, do not carry conceptual content. The content is imparted on... Uh, those 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 neural irritations by the mind, by means of the language we speak, by means of the concepts at, at our disposal. Um, this is this is, I mean, the per person who wrote uh, 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 most clearly about this is John McDowell in Mind and World. The the the, the our theories, our conceptual schemes uh, do not spin in the void. 
Okay, they rub up against the world, but they do not rub up against the world in the sense in which the, the world speaks back in the language we speak. It's a very, very subtle and again framework dependent in the deepest, profoundest sense of the term enterprise. So what we see and what we experience and and what and the ways in which we conceptualize this is is uh, very much in 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 a Kantian neo-Kantian spirit. Uh, um, uh, conceptualized by the mind. The meeting of the mind and world uh, is, is, is precisely that. So therefore, uh, when a paradigm shift happens, I mean, Kuhn himself says, uh, he, he described it this way, and I, and I describe it the same. I'm, I'm an absolute realist about external reality, but that realism is framework dependent. And when a paradigm shifts, Kuhn put it very, very bluntly, we find ourselves in the new world. Um, uh, uh, standards of facticity, uh, how things appear to us, uh, what they represent, what their significant, significance are, uh, are, are framework dependent. Now, it, what I didn't want to get into was into the fray uh, 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 of that set of disagreements. Um, uh, empiricism and the philosophy of mind uh, is the name of Wilfred Seller's famous essay, where that notion of the myth of the given, as though as though there's a bedrock of given experience to which we, which sits, as as Quine put it, uh, uh, in one place, as the tribunal uh, of our theorizing, is is is. Uh, uh, is incoherently misguided. And so, therefore, mathematics allowed me, treating mathematics as a sort of uh, a case study of, of, of the way in which a normative framework changes, allowed me to get away uh, from this sort of very, very heady uh, um, uh, discussion of, 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 of empiricism. Uh, and reality and realism and the framework dependency and the language dependency uh, of that to, uh, you know, where, where frame, normative frameworks almost stand in isolation uh, uh, from, from the real world where, where mathematical realism is not about fitting the facts but about being about things like time or number uh, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, that, uh, so, so I thought that would be a good example. Um, I've, I've done work on William Huell, who worked on mathematical physics, um, but I, I didn't want to rehash that as an example. I, I preferred Peacock because it would give me a sort of a clean, uh, a clean account of, of framework shifting uh, without, without raising the problem of, of empiricism. But I think I state clearly at the beginning that I belong, I'm not defending that position in the book, but I belong within the neo-Kantian, uh, Brandomian, uh, uh, McDowellian uh, camp that takes Seller's view of empiricism. Okay, very good. Um, well, I think we're out of time at this point. There's a lot more 
the many more questions, but I think uh, we should probably end and, and just invite readers to uh, to look at the book your, themselves. Um, but for now, I think we should end. And I wish to thank you again for uh, speaking with New Books and Philosophy. Thank you so much, Carrie. This has been this has been wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to my interview with Menachem Fish, who is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at Tel Aviv University. We've been talking about his new book, Creatively Undecided, Toward a History and Philosophy of Scientific Agency, which is just out from University of Chicago Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy, uh, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you again for listening. Bye-bye. <music>